Hey, it's Antoinette, and welcome to another episode of the Hormone Heartbeat Podcast. Today's episode in my fertility series is about miscarriage and understanding what hormonal conditions can put you at an increased risk of miscarriage and what labs you should consider asking your fertility doctor for if you've experienced one or possibly two miscarriages. My guest today is Dr. Anna Dentino, and she not only is going to share with us her personal experience with miscarriage, but also how she works with couples on their fertility journey to optimize their chances of having a successful pregnancy. And I can't wait to share our interview with all of you today. Welcome to the Hormone Heartbeat Podcast, a podcast about female empowerment through menstrual cycle health, the true heartbeat of your hormone status. With each episode, we'll explore the foundations of hormone health with science, soulful, and heartfelt conversations, a dash of sass, and feminine pizzazz. Our dream is to arm you with exactly what you need to be an unstoppable female force, ready to achieve all that your heart desires and embrace your inner goddess. And here's your host, naturopathic doctor, birth doula, fertility awareness educator, hormone enthusiast, and lover of pretty things, Antoinette Falco. Welcome, Anna. It's so great to have you in today's episode. I'm really looking forward to hearing all of your knowledge and wisdom on this very, very important topic. Thanks for having me. All right. Let's start by having you share a little bit about, about you and maybe perhaps what led you to doing the work that you do. You work a lot in the fertility space and I'd love for you to share a bit about your journey and about what that's like. I am a naturopathic doctor in, on the East Coast in uh, Nova Scotia. Um, and I was always pretty interested in hormonal health and fertility since our last year at CCNM. I had a supervisor for one of my clinic shifts who was really passionate about fertility. And I, re- I learned a lot from her. Even what I learned a lot about sort of doctor patient relationships and things like that from her and her how she treated the patients on their shift so I really ad- admired that a lot and I wasn't really sure when I moved back to the east coast if I would if there was as much of a demand for naturopathic fertility care and naturopathic hormonal so but it was always kind of in the back of my mind that that's sort of what I wanted to focus on and then when I moved home I I did start to sort of attract those types of, of patients who were either going through fertility treatments at our, our local um, our fertility clinic. We actually, in the Maritimes, we actually only have two fertility clinics. So wow. yeah, yeah, word kind of would spread quickly with the patients there like, oh, are you looking for a naturopathic doctor to help you? Um, because they, they saw such like volumes of of people in the run of a day. So I think that's really where it sort of picked up. And then I spent a lot of my time, especially in like those early years, like after graduation from CCNM, really doing a lot of extra research um, into fertility and going to like conferences that were specific to it. And I just sort of started to attract clients like from that. I was married at our last year at CCNM, I think, or maybe our third year. I can't, I can't actually remember. Um, and my, but my husband and I weren't at the time we were sort of early in our careers and things like that. We weren't looking to get pregnant. And so I had always sort of struggled with my own challenges with my periods and, and hormonal health when I was younger. I, I always had irregular periods and so I went on birth control like most of us and I and it regulated them super nicely I got I bled every month and it was I had a 28 day cycle and it was awesome then when we were at CCNM and learning more about our menstrual cycles and menstrual health and things like that I decided that I wanted to stop using the birth control and really see what my cycles were actually like because I honestly didn't know. So I feel like I was very fortunate to sort of have like the the time and the resources then from seeing other interns or like talking to supervisors and, and our professors. I was actually really fortunate to have the time to work out my own hormonal health at the, at when I was at school. So I did end up when it was time after, you know, a couple of years of 
working in clinic when my husband and I decided like, okay, maybe we'll, we'll try for a baby. At that time I, I did have normal periods. I was ovulating every month. And so I was very fortunate. However, uh, we struggled with, with recurrent miscarriage. So I do have, I have an eight month old. Well, actually he's almost nine months now, but before we had him in July, I had, we had four miscarriages before I was actually able to carry him to term, which is obviously not something anybody or any couple ever thinks is going to happen. But it was, that sort of brought a whole new light to my practice after that. Wow. It's hard when couples, you know, experience one, but four miscarriages. How was it for you working through each one of those in terms of, in terms of your mental health and how you were able to get yourself up to keep going and to keep trying through the fertility journey? It is an interesting thing to go through, obviously, because from my experience and, and from talking to like friends and patients at work, most of us, as soon as we get a positive pregnancy test, we're like, oh my gosh. And your mind just starts to plan and plan and plan, especially some of us are like a little closer to like type A personalities and almost like a reflex to be like, okay, here we go. What do we need? What do we need to do? Like, what is the next step and things like that. So even though like you might, and I mean, again, for me, somebody who talks about periods all day, every day, I, I could be like 10 minutes late for my period. I'm like, well, I must be pregnant. So it wasn't even like I was, it wasn't even like I was a month late. It was like, I was a day late. All right, let's take that pregnancy test. And right away I was, okay, so what do I have to do now? And so I feel like that's something I didn't expect was when you do miscarry, you're grieving those plans or like what you had mentally planned out for the the two of you, the three of you, whatever, you're really grieving the loss of sort of your future in a way. And that's something I, I never really thought about before until I had experienced my, it myself. And so the first time it was hard, it was, it was hard every time mentally, obviously. Cause again, like I said, like you're really, you are, it's the loss of like the future or your plans or what you had kind of like thought up in your head, but there, and then I had to use sort of like the other side of my brain where I do talk about this often at, at work. So I was like, okay, Anna, you know, the statistics on this and that these things do happen. So like do what you need to do and to get through it. And then we'll move on from here. But then once the second one happened, it was like, okay, what is like, what is going on here? As much as we don't want it to be, it still is a taboo subject. I think there's a lot of people Mm -hmm. who get very uncomfortable talking about it. And I found for me, that was even sort of our, our, our healthcare team, our doctors, and they would just sort of brush it off as like, it happened. It was difficult to find sort of a, an appropriate like support system. Like my partner was obviously awesome, my husband, but, but just to get answers, it was, it was tricky at times. And I feel like that was also a really big challenge for us going through it, just to figure out who to turn to, who to like ask for help or to at least try to figure out some, some answers. So yeah, so that was something that I really, I struggled with as well. For a lot of, of couples, you know, the, it might sound obvious grieving a loss, right? Like you physically something that's lost, but I think grief in the fertility space can, it can happen across, you know, every cycle, like every cycle that you're not pregnant, there's a grief of, you know, that embryo that didn't fertilize. And it's hard. It is just so hard and not something that we, we talk about and, and offer support in that space. And I, I can appreciate what you're saying about, you know, it being a taboo subject for people, people don't know, don't know how to, how to react, how to respond. And, you know, I always, I always say sometimes it's, it's actually about saying nothing. It's about saying like, I hear you, I see you and I hear you. And I'm sorry that you're going through this. Let me know what I can do or say to help in the situation because I don't know what to say. And sometimes just recognizing that can go a long way. I don't know if you would agree or if, if that's something that, that I you found. I totally agree. I found the same, the same thing. And uh, I found that's almost what helped me the most. 
one of my really good friends, what I remember telling her one day and she just said to me like, you know what, Anna, like there are no words, like there are no Mm -hmm. words that I can say to you right now to, to make this better. But I just want you to know, like I'm here, just tell me what to do. If there is anything that can be done, just tell me and I'll do it. And I found like that to be like the biggest help for me because sometimes I find when people are uncomfortable or they don't know what to say, they say really silly things. And, and again, it's no fault of their own because you don't, they don't mean to often, say, it, yeah. no, they don't mean to say it at all, but it's just can sometimes just be so insensitive. And then for us where we did have, it happened to us so many times, we didn't want it to be like a taboo thing either. So we would often tell people, um, mm-hmm. especially if they would ask, like if everything was okay, we would say it, tell people and they would just like, I feel like Cohen and I, my husband and I heard it all. Like just the silly, like the greatest things. Like we actually had a doctor that we were dealing with and she was initially with the fir- my first pregnancy, she was going to be our, like our obstetrician. And she said, well, you know what guys, some people just aren't supposed to be parents. And so like we heard, yes. So we heard like the whole, like almost every end of the spectrum. I feel like those are the two opposite ends of the spectrum. And like, we did hear some other things in the middle, but yeah, like just like now it, and now it seems like crazy things. And of course at the time I was devastated, Yeah. but now that I am out of it a little bit or it's not as fresh anymore I just like nobody ever means to hurt you or be offensive and when they're saying those things but it sometimes it is hard and I'm sure you know you don't know what what other people are going through or what what we're triggering for other people and you do need to keep that in perspective but at the time you're like oh my gosh I can't believe they just said that yeah. um yeah so it was it was an interesting experience for sure. I think you, you said that perfectly. Like we don't know, or you don't know what that, that doctor, what her personal bias or experiences were with that. And I think just recognizing that they're, they're trying and the words coming out aren't what she intended them to be in her head. Um, Yeah. And I feel like we've all been there. Like sometimes I've, I've said things and immediately like, oh my gosh, I wish I could just put those words right back in my mouth. And you know, it's a, a high stress situation when you're dealing with people who are really going through any fertility challenges, whatever it is, it's, it is, there's such a big, like emotional piece to it that sometimes when you're in those environments, you just think things are said. And mm-hmm. it's okay, but it is, it's hard. Sometimes Absolutely. it takes a while to process. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Let's chat a little bit about how common miscarriages are. I know you shared that they're, you know, they are a taboo subject. A lot of women like don't tell anybody that they've experienced a miscarriage. And then yeah. also to that, could you share a little bit about the various the various types of miscarriage. So, you know, we have, there's lots of different terms that get thrown out. Um, some of the two like more common ones that I hear is a blighted ovum or a chemical pregnancy. Could you set the scene for how common they are and, uh, you know, exactly what type of miscarriages could happen or a woman might experience? Like you said, a lot of women don't talk about miscarriage. And, and what I found personally is that once you have one, oftentimes, and and you are comfortable talking about it, you really realize just how common they are. I found when I was sharing what I went through, like, with, like, friends, or even my, even my mom's friends, or like, my aunt, they were like, oh, like, oh, that's terrible, like, whatever, everybody was very, very sort of, like, empathetic towards me, but oftentimes, they would say, you know, I had one too between so-and-so and and -and so-and-so or my first pregnancy was miscarried. And I find when people do talk about it, the doors open up. But this this also 
might be a reason that we don't have the greatest data on just how common they are for a couple of reasons. It data specific to Canada. It's not, we don't know really how accurate it is for this reason. Sometimes they're not reported. Sometimes they happen so early. People don't even know, but it's sort of thought that about 15 to 20% of pregnancies do result in a miscarriage, which is surprisingly high. If not higher, if we don't have the right data. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And it, it's interesting, I find as well, because I don't know about you, but I, I grew up in rural Nova Scotia and our <laughs> sex ed was just very interesting. And I honestly thought that like, if you washed your underwear with a boy's underwear, like you could get pregnant and then you just had a baby. Like I didn't, I, I mean, I, I knew more than that, but I was very sort of naive to the fact that like it's not as easy, it's not as easy to get pregnant and stay pregnant as my like 13 year old self thought. So basically 15 to 20% of all pregnancies are miscarried or possibly a little bit more than that. And miscarriage. So there's a couple common terms for miscarriage, pregnancy loss, spontaneous abortion, miscarriage, it all means the same thing. And basically this is a loss of a pregnancy before the 20th week, essentially. And, but the majority of these pregnancy losses happen before the end of the 12th week. So before you move from that first trimester into um, the second trimester. So they estimate that about 85% of pregnancies are miscarried before the end of that 12th week. Um, and so there's a couple common types of miscarriage so one is a that you hear a lot about is like a chemical pregnancy this is like a very early pregnancy loss so it would be oftentimes it's before five weeks often the signs of it are you have a positive pregnancy test or your period is a couple days late and then you start all of a sudden you you start to bleed so before it was ever confirmed on an ultrasound or anything like that you miscarry so uh, it's basically just after that implant the embryo implants in the uterus it's it's miscarried sometimes women might not even have a positive pregnancy test because they might not even have realized they missed their period yet it it sometimes just is a late period and then another type of miscarriage uh that is kind of similar to that would be like a blighted ovum this is sometimes also known as like an anembryonic pregnancy. So basically uh, a fertilized egg attaches to the uterus and is growing nicely. The yolk sac is growing nicely, but there's no actual DNA or embryonic tissue growing. And so it can get like quite far along, but when they look at the pregnancy on an ultrasound, there's no actual embryo in there. It's more just like the, um, the sac that's growing. And then, uh, there's also a missed miscarriage. That's a common thing that I have, I hear about, or I have patients come in asking about. Um, and this is basically a, uh, when a miscarriage happens, but the tissue isn't released or you don't have like the bleeding and passing of the tissue. So the the fetus isn't measuring, the size isn't measuring um, what it should be for the weeks. So this does happen sometimes. So the, there's no, the heartbeat stops, um, but the tissue sort of stays in the, in the uterus. And oftentimes it requires something like a DNC or actual medical procedure to actually remove the tissue. Um, So those are usually the most common types of miscarriage you hear of. For most people, um, though, it's oftentimes it it doesn't require when a miscarriage happens, it's you get some bleeding, the tissue passes, and then and that's pretty much it. And usually, when it is, you know, in that first trimester, it's so small that it doesn't. It's it's more of a like a really really heavy 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 period, but you would be surprised how, like, what little tissue is passed. Right. Yeah. I yeah. have heard women who've had, you know, later miscarriages 
say it's you know can be quite painful, almost even more painful than than birth for those women yes. who are talking about it after the fact. So yeah, and that's a common misconception as well, which I actually didn't realize until I had a baby, is that depending again, depending on how far along you were. So usually if it's over sort of the eight week mark when the miscarriage happens, it's oftentimes worse than birth in a way because your uterus will just constantly contract until everything is passed. So it's not like birth where you kind of go through contractions and then you have a little break and then you go through more and you have a little break. Like obviously birth takes longer a lot of times, but the actual miscarriage for a lot of women is a lot more intense. That was very good information, just breaking it down for women because I think there's so much there's so much terminology and you know information that you read on about online about this, and it's just good to know know the different terms and know what they mean, and of course, like what's happening at the different stages. So we know like there are multiple causes for miscarriage, not a lot of them like we know a ton about and but we know from like functional medicine or naturopathic perspective that there are conditions that maybe aren't routinely investigated in the in the fertility in the western medicine space so could you share some of like those potential causes or situations that could maybe predispose a woman to to miscarriage or a couple to miscarriage the thing we know sort of causes a miscarriage and is the most common cause is what they call chromosomal abnormalities. So essentially when an embryo develops, there's a lot of sort of cell division that has to take place. And it happens like quite rapidly because when you think about it, there's two tiny things come together that we can't even see to make like an eight pound baby, which is crazy. So there's a lot of things, especially early on that are, are going on on a cellular level. And so miscarriage is the cause is, is a hard thing to research because really all they can do is take the tissue that is the miscarried tissue that passes in and look at that. They can look at lab work and stuff for like mom and dad, but oftentimes it's afterwards. So it might not be as accurate. That is one thing they do know from that we do know from looking at like fetal tissue is sometimes they can see um, issues with with cell division and and DNA um, division that would make the the embryo or the baby incompatible with life. So our body just stops it, shuts it down, and miscarries because we know like a mistake was made, and we'll kind of. Now, better luck next time. Hopefully it doesn't happen next time. So they estimate that that's about 50% of miscarriages are, are because of chromosomal abnormalities or, or something along those lines. So that's one of the really one of the most sound causes. But there are a couple other things too that could sort of increase your risk of miscarriage. So I talk about a lot as far as internal health goes is you are at an increased risk with certain sort of lifestyle habits. If you're a smoker, if you're a heavy drinker, some environmental toxins can sort of increase your risk. So for some people that come into my office, sometimes that's your job. Um, If you're exposed to a lot of like chemicals or solvents or things like that, where you work, that could um, increase your risk of miscarriage. Certain infections can increase your risk. So this might be like STIs or, um, or even a history of that or pelvic inflammatory disease. And then uh, some hormonal conditions can increase your risk of miscarriage. So polycystic ovarian syndrome, this is, this is a common one. Uh, and I know you talked to, uh, to Dr. Ann about uh, PCOS recently. Um, and I think, I think you guys actually even did talk about that predisposing, that condition predisposing you t- to uh, miscarriage. Um, so that's a common one. A luteal phase defect is another hormonal condition that I see oftentimes in, in my office. And we know this carries an increased risk of miscarriage because of how it affects our progesterone levels. Um, and certain autoimmune diseases too. And I find that this oftentimes gets overlooked. We do 
hear a lot about people, women who have um, thyroid conditions, oftentimes like Hashimoto's, um, that it's really important to sort of get get your thyroid regulated and, and working optimally before trying to conceive because otherwise that could increase the risk of miscarriage. But there are other ones that get other autoimmune conditions that get overlooked as well. So um, certain like inflammatory bowel diseases, so Crohn's, colitis can increase your risk. Um, Celiac disease as well is another one. Lupus, endometriosis is another one. And then clotting disorders. So if you have a family history of clotting disorders, that's an important one to look at as well. And then (laughs) this is another thing that... Um, can increase your risk of miscarriage as well that never gets talked about, not never, but not enough, is dad's health. Oftentimes the onus is on the woman and, you know, making sure she's in tip top shape and, and, and the, the male partners oftentimes sort of not looked at until, you know, you've had four miscarriages or whatever. But it, but we do know that men who ha- do have it increased DNA damage on like a, a sperm analysis. They are, they increase the risk of miscarriage in, in their partner. So it's really important to to not forget about dad and this this whole scheme of things too. So his diet and and lifestyle uh, factors can can increase that risk as well for you as a couple. And then our age, and this is age for mom and age for dad. So the increase the risk of miscarriage increases as as both partners age those are some things that I like to kind of look at with a couple when they come in whether they've had one miscarriage or they've had four or somewhere in the middle and the the last thing I usually talk about as well is uterine abnormalities as I say but basically it does it's more rare i would say but there are you do have an increased risk of miscarriage if you have a history of uterine fibroids scar tissue so this could be from a previous c-section or um, ectopic pregnancy also from endometriosis sometimes some women too depending on the shape of their uterus they can have an increased risk of miscarriage so uh, bicornate uterus, which is a fancy word for a heart-shaped uterus, or or different things like that can really um, impact your chances of carrying to term. Wow, that was a very thorough list. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for that. One that I want to go back and highlight is luteal phase defects, because that's one yeah. that we don't hear about very often from, you know, fertility doctors, they're, they're not necessarily communicating that with patients. So mm-hmm. if you could explain what that is and how a woman might go about knowing if that's what's going on for her. It's a term that I know some like healthcare professionals don't like because it, it's not very self-explanatory. So basically how I usually kind of summarize it, I guess, is essentially your uterine lining isn't as mature as it should be for where you are in your cycle. So this becomes a problem when your uterine lining, your uterus as like an environment, let's say, isn't where it should be for implantation to happen and then growth of the embryo to happen. So we need a lot of progesterone in the first sort of trimester of pregnancy because we don't, our placenta hasn't formed by then. And our placenta is a little progesterone factory. It, it pumps out a lot of progesterone to support the growth of our little embryo into a fetus and into a big giant baby afterwards. If you're, if you're unable to, to make enough progesterone from your ovary um, to sort of support that first 12 13 weeks of, of pregnancy, that is often, that can be a cause of miscarriage because you don't have enough to sort of sustain that growth and it stops. Um, and then we see a miscarriage or a mis- miscarriage, either of those, those things without the progesterone. So sometimes for women who have experienced one miscarriage or 
multiple, that sometimes can be all that they need. Maybe they just need a prescription for progesterone um, just to support until the placenta sort of takes over to make, uh, make it on its own. So that's something to definitely explore with your, your team. Maybe that's the fertility clinic. Maybe that's your naturopathic doctor. So just getting some blood work to see if you're where your progesterone levels are on your own and, and talking about other things that could be affecting progesterone production. So yeah, that's one that definitely gets overlooked from my experience for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And if, if I could add something to that, you know, it's called luteal phase defect. So the luteal phase of your cycle starting after ovulation. And we know women who are trying to conceive, they are bang on when they ovulate or they're, they're charting to know when they ovulate and they're doing all of the things that they can to identify when ovulation is happening. And, um, that's the window, right? That's when your body starts ramping up progesterone and, you know, you're going to do your testing within that, within that window. And when I say window, I mean, okay, if ovulation happens, we'll use the general, you know, textbook, let's say it happens on day 14, then you have like a two week window where, you know, that corpus luteum is producing the progesterone that you need to, as Anna said, like build your lining and support the implantation of that embryo. And, you know, there's some things too, like blood work is a good idea too, but if you've been charting and you know, like, let's say you start to experience some spotting, let's say, I don't know, 10 days after ovulation happens. Well, that could be a sign. Okay. Maybe I should go talk to someone and I should get my progesterone tested because if I'm spotting, that means my progesterone is likely not high enough to, to thicken my lining. Cause what's happening is as those hormones drop, we're bleeding a little bit. We're bleeding a little bit. Yeah. So I love that you said that. Yeah. And I don't know, I'm sure a lot of, of women who come to see you, I don't, I don't know if you're similar to me, but everyone's familiar with charting their cycle. (laughs) Oh (laughs) yeah. Yeah. Yes. So, and even changes in, in the length of that, the second half of your cycle, like that's an important thing for women to watch out for too. Like what happened this cycle that, you know, made my period come a day early or two days early, or was I really, really stressed out? Did I have work deadlines? Did something really bizarre happen this month? Because uh, like hormones, don't act alone. So it's, it is so important to, to track that closely to see like, could my stress hormones have affected my progesterone production this month? We don't know, but those clues are just so, so important. Mm -hmm. No, absolutely. And, you know, I, I also tell women like it's the luteal phase of your cycle that generally stays constant. Like that shouldn't change. It should be the same number of days for you. And if it is changing, you know, a couple things that could be going on, are you ovulating earlier or later based mm-hmm. on, you know, based, based on what's going on, lifestyle factors, travel, diet, stress, all those factors that stress, are going to yeah. when you ovulate. And then also, yeah, like, like Anna said, like stress is, stress steals progesterone or sabotages progesterone. So totally. that's another thing too. Your body like might not be even producing enough to sustain your typical um, luteal phase length, which that is for you. Yeah. Totally. Um, Yeah. Great. So as we said, lots that women can do to support progesterone in that space in terms of like investigating and then working to help support you in all those factors of your Mm -hmm. health going along with maybe some recommendations. We talked about the conditions that may be at play, But if we could speak generally to how couples, you know, as a team can work to reduce their miscarriage risk, if they have, let's say one of those conditions, so let's say they know they have celiac disease or endometriosis or Hashimoto's, like where, what would you say to those couples on what they can start doing maybe in advance to when they're actively trying to conceive? Yeah. So I usually say this to couples in in general who like walk through my office or I get chatting with some other place if you're thinking about starting a a family or trying to get pregnant if you know you know in the next within the next year within the next six months we'd like to start trying or or whatever that time frame might be for you 
I always tell people it's a great idea to be thinking about this early. So if, if you're not ready right now, but you, you think you'll be ready in six months, make a plan. So it doesn't have to be anything crazy. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't have to be uh, juice fasting for the next however long and anything drastic at all. But if you, if you know it, it, you want to try soon. I usually tell people give yourself like three, three months or so, or somewhere in that three to four month window and, and look at your diet and look at some of your lifestyle habits, look at your exercise currently and, and find somebody you can talk to, whether that is your naturopathic doctor, whether that's your family doctor, whoever you're comfortable with and, and make a plan together. Like maybe you, you want to cut back, start cutting back your caffeine intake. Maybe you want to start cutting back your, your alcohol consumption or stopping that totally. Like what are little changes you can sort of work with a professional on to set the stage for, you know, when it is time to try. So I think that's a really important thing to do before just ripping the bandaid off one month and being like, Hey, let's give it a go. We're going to try for a baby this month. And then being really upset when it either doesn't happen or if it did result in a miscarriage, planning for what you can control beforehand is always a, a, a good idea, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And setting the stage, putting, laying the foundations. I think those are yeah. all how we say to my, to my patients, it's not just about having, getting pregnant, right? It's about right. maintaining a pregnancy. It's about healthy baby. It's about healthy grandbabies, you know, the totally. whole, the whole jazz, yes. which um, it's so important. The basics, the foundations, what would you say to couples who have experienced a miscarriage? And I'm sure you went through, you, you went through this you know, mentally, as you were going through the journey where you had your first miscarriage and then you were pregnant again. And mentally, I imagine it's just the thought every time you go to the washroom, every time you, you, you're checking, am I bleeding? Is this another miscarriage? You know, that's in your head. So how do you encourage or optimize or, or give couples that hope and faith to, work through those maybe mental challenges that, that may come up once they've had one miscarriage and they're, you know, pregnant again the second time. Yeah. This is something I'm familiar with. And you just saying like, I totally brought back something I haven't thought about in a while when you said going, you know, go every time you go to the washroom and, and like checking to make sure not like you're not spotting or anything like that. I honestly did that until I was probably eight and a half months pregnant with my, with my son, which is now I'm like, oh my gosh, I can't believe you did that. But at the time, like I totally checked every time I went to the, to the washroom. But I usually tell people if, tell couples, if it happens once, don't wait, go get tested, go get assessed, try like advocate for yourself as much as you possibly can because technically oftentimes in with conventional medicine and I mean I mean I know this is different provincially but here in Nova Scotia where I am couples oftentimes can't really get a full workup done until they've had three um, losses which is a lot Mm. um so I usually tell people you know find your team. Like, is this going to be your GP? Is it going to be an OB, um, an obstetrician? Is it going to be an ND? Who can you get on your side that you click with and that you feel really comfortable with? And like, let's push, let's push to get assessed. Is that blood work for you, blood work for your partner, like a sperm analysis for your partner? And it doesn't all have to happen right away, but I think working to figure out what's going on is, is a good thing to do. So we're not just, we're not just going to sit around and wait until it happens again. And I find oftentimes that like knowing that you're, you're doing something or you're doing 
everything you can to lower that risk helps with the mentality to keep going. And I always tell, I say this to everybody, don't lose hope. So again, I, with statistics, we know that just because, just because you've had one miscarriage, that doesn't put you at risk for miscarrying your next pregnancy, which is, is really good. So just because you have one doesn't mean you're at a higher risk for like having another one. So don't lose hope, stay positive because it's so easy. It's, it is so easy to lose hope. And it, especially if you did, maybe you did have other struggles. Like maybe it did take you a long time to get pregnant and then you miscarried, or maybe you had to do IUI or IVF or a treatment and, and it worked, but then you miscarried. So it's so easy to just be like, okay, I'm obviously not supposed to have a, a baby. But I usually tell people like the, your mind is a very, a very powerful tool. So whatever you need to do to, to bring a little peace and to bring a little hope into your day, like, can you just meditate on, on it, on the experience, on your bait, on your future baby? Can you can you journal and can you write to them or write about them or something that they could read, you know, years from now about what this experience was like, what this journey was like for you to get to them. Anything you can do to, to be positive for the next time. Or even if you just need to, you know, write down once a day, like, this is my baby. Like I like, we're ready for you. Like, whatever, anything you can do to just to kind of stay in the, the headspace of like, this is, it's going to happen. It's taking a long time and it's not going as I thought it would, but it, it is, it is going to happen can make all the difference in the world. Mm-hmm. Oh, I love that you said meditating, meditating on it and connecting with your baby. Yeah, That's my, it's so beautiful. You, we, we don't often think of the baby as part of the journey to get, like we think about physically like having the baby at the end, but we don't think about, you know, the soul, the spirit of your baby before you actually conceive them physically. And so being able to, yeah, invite them, invite them to stay in this world. You know, at the time of this recording, we're in a global pandemic and there's a lot happening in our world. And I know there are women couples who will find out they're pregnant in this phase and it might be terrifying, you know, like totally you're so stressed. There's so much going on is the right time. You know, you you maybe had a miscarriage and you're thinking like, I'm going to get this virus and I'm going to miscarry. You know, there's so many thoughts that, you know, take up rent in our brain that don't deserve to be there. And I think now more than ever is a good time to, you know, if you do find out that you're pregnant to connect, whether that's through meditation, going outside, prayer, like whatever, whatever speaks to you and say, okay, baby, we're in this together. We're going yeah, to do like, this. Let's do we want this. you here. We love you. We can't wait to meet you. The world yeah. is the world is safe despite you know what's going on because you are creating that safety environment for your baby. So beautiful. I love that you said that. Yeah. And I'm all about I love reading, you know, research on on hormonal health and fertility and anything that I can get my hands on. But sometimes I think that a whole other side of things just gets completely like brushed to the wayside. You know what? This little person's going to come into the world on their own terms and you have no control. Like after you, you don't have any control about when you get pregnant, like anything like that. You don't have any control over how they come into the world. Like you, it's great to have a plan and I'm all about a good plan, but ultimately they're, they're going to come when they're ready to come. And then after nine months of being pregnant, like they're going to arrive on whatever day they want to arrive and you have no say about it anyway. So I think sometimes it's important to just connect like mentally and spiritually and, and that, does that makes a huge difference. Absolutely. And if there is a time to, if there is a time to practice letting go of control, definitely right now. Now is the time. Exactly. Yeah. And I will say like, you know, some of the clinics, I'm fortunate where I live that there's 
multiple clinics within, you know, a 40 minute drive. But there's one in particular that I loved what they were doing is they, they were triaging new patients and they were asking them, okay, who are you working with on your diet? Who are you working with for your spirit? Like, how's your spirituality? How's your relationship with your partner? And you know, that spiritual aspect isn't one that many conventional fertility clinics are asking about. And it was very refreshing to me to see that element added in a, you know, a Western medicine kind of setting being the fertility clinic. So that was refreshing. And I think women who are listening, you know, your spirituality, whatever that looks like for you is really important in just as much as the physical aspects of preparing your body. You know, this is, this is in a way is that, is that mental, that mind, that like, you know, fourth dimension, like what exists outside of this physical world, you know, technically that's where our babies are hanging out. They're just totally physical world, right? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I I love that because I feel like that often, like you said, I feel like there's very few clinics that are probably asking about that and even asking about your relationships, like, Mm -hmm. and your relationship with your partner, like that's huge. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. absolutely. Maybe that would be a good idea for an episode. I'll have to think about that. (laughs) (laughs) See see if my husband would be down for that. Probably not, but (laughs) actually he might be, he likes talking, so it could be an interesting episode. (laughs) I will be listening to that episode. (laughs) Uh, Okay. Let's get into a few more nitty gritties before, before I let you go. And that is Let's talk about the investigative blood work. So you talked about how couples could get ahead of knowing if they're at risk and, and how they could plan for, plan for when they're going to try, try to start to conceive or expanding their family or whatever that looks like. So what does you know, a routine fertility workup look like from a, we'll say like from a naturopathic doctor's perspective. So this is, of course, taking into account what it looks like at a traditional fertility clinic through Western medicine. But I'd just love for you to, you know, paint a picture of what a fertility workup looks like, let's say for a couple who's experienced one miscarriage. Like what are you looking for? Like you said, oftentimes the fertility clinics workup looks totally different. But if somebody came to me post miscarriage and it had been, they had done fertility treatment through a clinic. I love when they can sort of bring in what they had done there because that can sort of cut out a lot of time and answer a lot of questions for us. So that's always great. But otherwise, if they, if they didn't, and they didn't have it, they might not have had any blood work done before this miscarriage at all. So if that that was the case more so or something similar, usually I will send them for blood work myself and I typically get their luteal phase hormones done, which I usually get progesterone like we talked about. Um, This can give us clues to how much they're producing to maintain that pregnancy um, if they're ovulating, which if they got pregnant, they at least ovulated once, but it, but we'll know if they're ovulating regularly. Usually also then do FSH as well, which is another hormone that is done in the first half of your cycle. So day three of your cycle typically. And um, this is a hormone that comes from your brain, a brain hormone. And it's basically telling us how, how hard your ovaries are working to mature a good um, a nice healthy quality egg. Um, so I usually get that done as well. Um, I always get a thyroid panel done. So not just the typical TSH or the thyroid stimulating hormone. I get the uh, other thyroid hormones and the antibodies done as well. Just kind of along the lines we were chatting about earlier about um, autoimmune conditions. If there is an issue with the thyroid, it's important to know whether there's an autoimmune component as well, um, because we're going to treat it a little bit differently. So I get that done with all women to know, again, if there's that autoimmune component. But also we know even within the normal range of TSH, there's like an even tinier range, as I like to say, that is sort of optimal for the um, 
TSH to be in to maintain a pregnancy. Um, so we really want to make sure you're in that window. Um, I also usually get uh, vitamin D um, measured as well. So this one, again, I know things are different provincially oftentimes with blood work too, but in Nova Scotia, we really, it's really tricky to get vitamin D run through like our provincial labs or like going to your GP and things. If you don't really have a good reason to do it, oftentimes they won't. And we can only have it measured every like so many years just because they say it's because a lot of people are deficient in general. So they usually say just supplement anyway, but I don't like to do that. I like to know the actual number. So this is one that oftentimes I have to send people to get measured anyway, because nobody else is going to do it. But for every point that your vitamin D goes up, your miscarriage risk decreases. So this is a really important one to, to look at. We use a lot of, we use vitamin D for a lot of like hormonal and like immunological aspects of our, um, our health and we know with certain hormonal conditions that do uh, do predispose us to miscarriage oftentimes there are issues with like lower levels of vitamin D so with PCOS and endometriosis so I always check this one and then I also will look at RBC folate and B12 and homocysteine so these kind of all go together just to make sure that there's no sort of issues with like nutritional deficiencies or um, they can kind of point to some issues with certain like genetic predispositions. And then if they're more so with recurrent miscarriage also will get clotting factors looked at as well. I honestly don't see that as being, the, I've only seen that as being the issue a couple of times, but it's a good, it's really, it's still really important to look at it, especially if you've had more than one. Um, so that's usually where I start. And then of course, I'm going to say the typical naturopathic answer, obviously going to depend on the, the couple, we might, uh, change it up a little bit, but, but those are kind of the general places that I start. Mm -hmm. No, very yeah. thorough list. And I think it's <laughs> as much as it is individual and it does depend on the pre presenting case and symptoms. I think it is valuable for listeners to hear you know, that was your list and then cross-reference it with what's going on with them and what they have had done. And then if need be, take that next step and yeah. book an appointment with somebody who can help them get a more thorough picture of what's going on. So that is definitely important. Yeah. And I usually like to kind of have this, this basic list for people too. Cause that, like I said, sometimes when you're going through this, you do really feel like there is that loss of control or you have absolutely no control over what's happening with you and your body and things like that. So even just having the ability to, you know, get these things looked at and, and having a starting place oftentimes lets us regain at least a bit of a feeling that you are doing something and you're doing what you can, because oftentimes when you, if you do end up in the emergency room, say with your miscarriage or at a follow-up appointment or something like after your miscarriage, oftentimes they, the answer people will hear is like, well, just try again and then we'll see what happens next time. And that answer doesn't like fly with me. <laughs> so I feel like some people also feel similarly and you all, you feel like there's nothing you can do but there there are there are things you, we can do there are things we can look at and and I feel like that sometimes is instills a little bit of hope that we that we really need in that time mm -hmm. and my last like kind of general question what are your top three fertility tips that you think all couples can benefit from of course asterisks individualized medicine but yes. we do know that there are going to be some you know, general tips that will apply for all couples. So I'd love to hear what uh, your perspective on those are. So I, I love this question and I feel like this is a, a great question that I, I ask everybody who's kind of in like the hormone fertility world too. My first tip I usually say is focus on what you can control. So there are, there are some things we can't, we do have control over diet, lifestyle factors. We 
we do, we don't have to be perfect all the time, but we, but there are things that we know we can work on and, and kind of feel like we're doing the, the right thing. So oftentimes we, we don't know what that is for us and it is individualized. So usually al- along those exact same lines, I find a good practitioner, find somebody that you click with that's knowledgeable in, in the area and make, make a plan with, with them on things you could be doing at home. You can be doing every day and start there. I also like to tell people, try and keep things in, in perspective. Again, I know it, it is really easy when you're in the throes of trying to get pregnant to lose perspective totally. But I usually tell people, if, if you have two perfectly picture-perfect specimens of health, I don't know if those people exist, but if we imagine that they did, you only have like a 20% chance of getting pregnant every month. So you don't even have that many chances at getting pregnant in a year, really, when you kind of look at it like that. So try not to panic. It's really hard when you start seeing, you know, the Facebook announcements of people that like family and friends and people you went to high school with. And when you're trying, it seems like everybody is pregnant and they're everybody and their dog even is pregnant. Mm -hmm. But if you can just not panic about it, that is, that is works wonders. And then the other tip I have, I always try and tell people is try to remember also that like, you're not doing this alone. You have a partner that is going through this stuff too. So it is also sometimes really hard, especially with miscarriage, because unfortunately, like with all the physical things that you're going to go through, that's just the woman, but they're like your partner's going through it too. So it is really important to remember that. And so as lonely as it does feel sometimes, like you still have them. And I think it's, and even when with other aspects of fertility too, if, if you are struggling to get pregnant, like sometimes it can feel like nobody else like understands you and no one else is going through the same thing. And, and again, like it is different because you're going to be the one carrying the baby and, and different things. And you're the one who's now hormonal on their period, but they're there with you too. And I always try and get people to like, not forget that and still connect with them and still be very open with how you're feeling and, and like share that experience with them because it, it is isolating, but you do have somebody there. Women, we sometimes fall into the trap of feeling like like we're alone, no one gets it, and mm-hmm. our partners don't get it. They don't they don't see it the way we do. But you know, when you when you have conversations with like sometimes I'll get the male partner will come in, of course, because their wife insisted that they come in and made them, absolutely. And then they'll say to me, you know, I'm here because I just want to know what I can do to support my yeah. partner. I like I don't know what to do. So they they want to help and and they they love their partner so much and it's absolutely yeah. devastating for them to see to see them to go watch them it. go through it. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, excellent tips Anna. Thank you so much for sharing those. I think that question listeners may have been expecting, you know, like eat these foods, take these supplements, yeah. but I think you answered it correctly in saying it's about being as perfect or having as perfect of a health as you can for you and making those small changes when they feel right. I know my personal journey, you know, I, I was months of just taking, taking all the supplements, you know, I was being a good naturopathic patient and I was taking everything I needed to. And then you realize you're like, whoa, I think this is like, you know, is it everything? Like I'm now stressed about taking the right supplements and that is going against me. So I think like recognizing that along your journey, that picture perfect of health is going to look different and it's not always about, you know, what to take or like what I need to be eating because you do need to maintain some level of balance to get you through, you know, the the more mental emotional aspects of this journey. Totally. And you can take 
handfuls of supplements and you can be really good at it. Cause honestly, it's not that easy. (laughs) If you have to set an alarm on your phone to remember when you do like your morning, noon and nighttime supplements, well, that's super easy. But if you're taking all those supplements and still losing your mind and you're so stressed out, you're not sleeping and then you lose your appetite and you're not eating, then you can take supplements till the cows come home and it's not going to help. And I feel like that sometimes is not something that you can find on Google. Yeah. It's not talking about in the morning. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. When you're awake and you're just deep in the Wikipedia hole of what can I do to get pregnant or whatever. Yeah. I feel like perspective, right? Yes. We have all been there. (laughs) Totally. Well, thank you so much for this interview, Anna. And I would like for you to share a bit about what you're working on or how women can get in touch with you, where to find you if they want to work together. You know, maybe they live in Nova Scotia or maybe they, you know, want to connect with you online. What's the best way for people to do that? So if you're in Nova Scotia, I can be found at Choice Health Center in both the Halifax and Dartmouth locations. Um, But I am pretty active online and on social media. So um, you can find me on Instagram at Anna Dentino, D-I-N-T-I-N-O, or on Facebook at Anna Dentino ND. My website is AnnaDentino.com. And right now we are myself and a couple other people, we are uh, actually working on um, a fertility support group out of our clinic right now. So yeah, if you touch base with us on Instagram or Facebook or my website, I can uh, put you put you in touch with the, the right information. Wonderful. Those support groups are so needed. So thank you on behalf of all women in the fertility space <laughs> for, for setting that up because it's really awesome. Totally. It's, it is awesome. And we like, we love doing it. So we're looking forward to it. Thank you for listening to the hormone heartbeat podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, be sure to subscribe so you can be notified of all future episodes. And don't forget to check out the show notes for all guest details and your free downloadable goodies. Your feedback is important to me, so please, please leave a review so women can find and be empowered by this knowledge. If you have a topic you'd like to see discussed on the show or have a recommendation for guests you'd like to see interviewed, please get in touch by emailing thehormoneheartbeatpodcast at gmail.com.